Hello, Grace family. My name is Adam Spees. I'm one of the pastors here at the Norton campus. And I pray that as you are watching and interacting with this video over the next half hour or so, is a time to kind of remind us and center us. A time to remember that God is at work, even amidst the uncertainty of our environment and the circumstances that we face. And remind that God has given us uh, his truth to help navigate situations like this. We're in a series called The Way of Change. And in this series, we're looking at Uh, what it means to begin to look at the life of Jesus and attach our life to Jesus, learning his rhythm and routines in a way of developing our own routines in response. And today I'd love to begin by telling you a story about two women in the Bible. These two women happen to be close friends of Jesus They hear that Jesus and his uh, disciples, kind of the gang of people he hung out with, are coming to town and they're going to be staying with these two ladies. They happen to be sisters, Mary and Martha, and they begin to uh, get busy with their preparations. They're working hard to host Jesus and uh, the rest of the disciples. They are making the beds, they're preparing the food. It makes me think of the times when we have family that comes in for a holiday. I think this past Christmas, uh, my wife and I hosted 10 of our family for a week, right? It's a high-stress situation where you're trying to think through all the details of hosting well. And Mary and Martha are doing that, and Jesus arrives. It says at that point, one of the sisters... Uh, leaves most likely the kitchen and makes her way to be with Jesus. It says that she recognized who he was, that uh, he was there in person, and she kind of positions himself in a way to learn from Jesus. She recognizes that he is her rabbi, and that is the most important thing that she can be doing at the moment. Martha, the other sister, is busy with the other preparations. She is at work, and I imagine her kind of observing that her sister has most likely left the scene, beginning to get a little agitated and worked up. After a while, she gets to the point of kind of being so frustrated that she's going to go tell Jesus what's up, right? So she makes her way out, I anticipate, probably... Uh, fuming a little bit, uh, wanting to correct the situation, wanting to criticize her sister, and makes her way to Jesus. I imagine Jesus probably calmly receives her, and Martha says, hey Jesus, my, my sister has left, like we're busy preparing for you and your guest, and Jesus kind of says, your sister, Mary, has chosen what is best, what is right, what is most important. Martha, you, on the other hand, are distracted. You're pulled in many directions. Isn't it easy to feel like Martha? To feel overwhelmed, overextended, exhausted, anxious, pulled in many directions? 
It's much easier at times to choose between the good and the bad rather than the important and unimportant. We, like Martha, can find ourselves exhausted and overwhelmed, wondering, maybe questioning, if change is possible. In this series, The Way of Change, we're looking at the life Jesus calls us to and inviting his presence into our lives in a way to bring about change. Change is an interesting concept. Some of us are very uncomfortable with change. Some of us want to grit it out and work really hard to change. Others of us feel guilty when we ever talk about change, inviting the process of actually trying to do or be someone different. Some of us just get grumpy. Others of us just want to give up. Today we're going to look at the topic of simplicity. Now, I don't know about you, but when I first hear of the topic of simplicity, it makes me think of a social movement, a phenomenon that's kind of gripped our nation. It's something that has really taken storm over the last five years. It's known as the tiny house movement, right? It offers a very drastic, different lifestyle and alternative to what many of us are accustomed to. Did you know in 1978, the average house size was around 1,700 square foot? Now, some 40-plus years later, it's almost increased by 1,000 square foot, right? In our consumer-driven culture and mindset, it's so easy to get caught up into bigger is better, right? To get caught up into a lifestyle of wanting more. And here we see this uh, tiny house movement offer a drastically different phenomenon. A tiny house is considered uh, around 400 square feet. Maybe you uh, pipe in to watch Tiny House Hunters or Tiny House Nation. I know I have a cousin of a cousin named Kendall who I follow on Facebook. She has her own tiny house, right? It's intriguing, but at the core, it offers a drastically different lifestyle to what we are accustomed to. When we begin kind of diving into this topic of simplicity related to the Bible, it isn't just what's on the exterior that's important, but rather what is also on our interior. Because what is on our interior begins to drive what shows up on our exterior. And so uh, with you today, I'd love for us just to take a look at a passage in Matthew chapter 6. This is a passage where Jesus is talking. This is his longest recorded teaching in the New Testament. And he's talking to a group of people about uh, his lifestyle, the way in which he seeks to emulate and live his life and the life that he invites us to be a part of. And in Matthew chapter 6, we see some of these truths related to pursuing a simple life. I think first it's important to see the big idea that I find in this passage is that simplicity is an inward attitude 
that affects our outward lifestyle. We're going to see that and how it plays out in Matthew chapter 6. You can follow along at home in uh, your Bible uh, or on our Grace app that we have, and I'd love to follow along. The scripture will be behind me as well. So starting in verse 19, Jesus says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. I think the most essential, most important part of this verse is the word for yourselves. For selfish, futile reasons that we live our life with looking out for number one, that the paradigm or focus of my life is all about my needs. Whether that is storing up things, hoarding based on our insecurity, or living luxurious at the times, often at the cost of our ability to be able to help others. But regardless of whatever may drive those decisions, those opportunities are living independently from God. And it's easy in those settings to begin to make idols of possessions and things, hoping that they bring about maybe the peace or satisfaction that is driving us. And Jesus says, right, do not store up for yourselves. What he is saying is, stop letting this be your focus. Or, never let this be your focus. Right? He's talking to a group of people that are in a very different society in terms of materialistic wealth. Right? And what is true for them is extremely true for us. That it's easy to allow this to become our consuming focus. So Jesus goes on in the next verse to offer an alternative in his upside-down kingdom. He says, But rather, store up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where moths and vermin do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. I think for us to even to begin to think this way, we must understand the brevity of life. I know now the panic that easily consume us or the fear, and some of us may be consumed about uh, the fear of death or the fear of death for loved ones. And it is realistic to maybe engage or think of life differently in circumstances. Right? There are times when we remember the brevity of life. I think of over the last month uh, how the MBA world has reacted to the loss of Kobe Bryant at the age of 41, lost in a tragic helicopter accident. Right? For us to begin to even be heavenly minded, we must think of our life as short. Right? James says that our life is like a mist that appears for a short while and then vanishes. Because that perspective or paradigm of thinking about life significantly impacts the way that I think about who I am and what I'm here to do. Right? That once I believe that God has, for a period of time, given me resources to use either for temporary or eternal purposes... I begin to think very different about those resources. I think of a few things that we think in terms of being stewards of. 
right? That God has given us time. That we have an allotted amount of time with how to choose what we do with it. Our treasures, right? Our gifts and our abilities, our talents, our treasures, the, our money, our things, our body. What is known as uh, the temple, the temple of the Holy Spirit for those that have chosen to follow Christ. And ultimately, His truth. That I begin to interact and think differently about those things, those resources that God has given me when I understand the brevity of life. I can then begin to store up treasures in heaven, not treasures on earth. Jesus goes on to give a truth related to um, our heart. And the truth that he gives us is that our heart and our treasures are interconnected. In verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If we want to move our heart, our treasure will follow. If we move our treasure, our heart will follow. What Jesus is saying is that they're deeply intertwined and connected, that to move one or the other will impact and influence the other. Where is our heart? Right? When we begin to look at uh, the things that we own, how we view our time, it begins to be an assessment of our heart. Because it's so easy to get caught up into uh, the race of life. There's a book by the author Richard Foster. It's called The Celebration of Discipline. And he has a beautiful chapter on this idea of simplicity. And in this chapter, he says, We crave things we neither need nor enjoy. We buy things we don't want to impress people we don't like. We feel that to be out of step with fashion is to be out of step with reality. Covetness and greed we often call ambition. People are important based on how much they produce or how much they earn. What drives the decisions that you make? Our values determine our priority. Our outlook determines our outcome. It's important for us to take time and assess our heart. Jesus goes on, and initially the next two verses seem a little bit out of left field. Right? He changes the analogy of one from our heart to one with our eyes. Look with me in verse 22. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Here Jesus isn't just talking about eyes that see physically well, but rather ones that perceive well. Think of it like this. This weekend, uh, my wife and I are getting new windows installed. Right, That there are times when you see a clean or a new window that it allows a light, a lot of light to shine in the room that you're in. That you begin to see with clarity things around you. 
But if there is mud or dirt on that window, it drastically impacts the light in the room. I think that's what Jesus is getting at, right? That our light uh, or our eyes are the entrance to our souls. And how we perceive the world, our perception as we think about our things, as we think about our time, drastically impact the manner in which we use them. Jesus goes on to summarize kind of this teaching with one final statement in verse 24. He says, no one, it's impossible, can serve two masters. He says, if we try to do that, you will end up hating the one and love the other. You will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. I think the big idea here in terms of simplicity is that simplicity entails living with single-minded focus. Right? As he was talking about uh, the ability only to serve one master, the, the idea of our eye being good or could also be translated single, it entails living with a perspective and a paradigm of seeking first the kingdom of God. Because if our loyalty is divided, it is impossible to live a successfully simple life. Two loyalties is too many. It complicates life. We live in a time and culture where the operating mantra is to have as many options as possible. That is what seems most fulfilling or most satisfactory. And often our life begins to seem like we're juggling many balls and all of those balls that we're trying to keep juggle end up having what we feel the same level of importance. And we feel like we're just trying to get by with the opportunities or response that we have. We have school, hobbies, church, work, fitness. Keeping the balls in the air can feel exhausting. Our desire to stay in touch with everyone at times can mean that we don't have intimate, close relationships with others. In an effort to be involved with everything, we get passionate about nothing. Our desire to give our kids every possible experience, we forfeit intimacy and connection and choosing what is best. We can easily get preoccupied with new gadgets, hoping that they would make life easier only to make life more complicated. Our desire to have all the toys causes us to lose financial margin, to be generous, to be able to help others. In our attempts to serve Jesus, we never really take the time to get to know him and get to embrace his love and his presence that he offers. Before long, our lives, what seemed fulfilling or the hopes of being fulfilling, are just full. That we end up chasing a lot of things and missing out on what matters most. That we feel exhausted, overwhelmed, overextended. I think when we talk about this topic of simplicity, we 
begin to think of it as the opposite of a complex life. But I don't think that is the flavor of what Jesus is talking about. Simplicity isn't the rejection of complexity, but rather it's unification. I'd like you to think of it this way, this table or in front of me or maybe in your living room or uh, in your car, wherever you're watching this, right? That in front of you, if there were 40 beads spread out, you may look at those beads and think that it's overwhelming. If you tip the table, they're all going to fall off. You have to pick it up. It would seem complex. But if you were to take a single thread and make your way through those beads and form a necklace, you would see the unity of those beads. I think that is the single-minded focus, to live our lives with a single dominant motive that brings the complexity of life into a beautiful picture in a beautiful rhythm. It allows us to live complexity with a single-minded focus. Jesus, when he talks about this idea of serving two masters, he says the natural outcome is to feel divided, to feel distracted. God and the things of this world are of such opposite natures that it's impossible for them to coexist. Richard Foster, in his book, says, Duplicity is bondage. It brings anxiety and fear. Simplicity, on the other hand, brings freedom. It brings joy and balance. If you're taking notes or kind of following along at home and are choosing to write some things down, I'd love you to write this. Duplicity leads to restlessness and confusion. Jesus' half-brother, James, writes uh, to a group of people who are scattered, facing many trials. And he's talking to them, amidst their trials, the opportunity we have to uh, invite God into our lives, into the conversation. And he talks about this topic of prayer in James chapter 1-5, but he talks about the duplicitous life. In verse 5 he says, If any of you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who always gives generously without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should expect not to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. This idea of being unstable, double-minded, is unwavering. It's this sense of inner conflict, of inner turmoil, unable to resolve ourselves. It would be similar to asking someone under the influence to walk a straight line. It's impossible to do. There is this inner conflict of never being able to feel completely resolved. That it's impossible to live our lives, to have freedom and uh, to uh, not live in fear if we're living a duplicitous life. The central point of simplicity that we see in Matthew 6 
is this idea of seeking first the kingdom of God. And then everything else will begin to take its proper order. Jesus kind of gives us the principles in Matthew 6, 19 to 24, and then he kind of gives us the implication of that, right? The application of how life will look when we firmly embrace this idea of simplicity. Look with me in verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, drink, wear. Is not life more than food, the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow, reap, or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin, yet not even Solomon in all the splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Do, don't worry. Saying, what shall we eat, drink, wear? For the pagans, those who haven't attached their life to Jesus, run after these things. But rather seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all of these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry. For tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. I think here we see the truth of living a simple life, one with the priority of seeking first the kingdom of God. That simplicity necessitates trust, but it frees me from anxiety. Right? We see three times in these ten verses that Jesus is telling his father's followers, do not worry. Right? Don't be anxious about the circumstance, what you eat, where, right? Don't live your life in such a way that you worry about those things. But rather, trust me, know that I am a God who will meet your needs, a God who will provide. That if you seek first the kingdom of God, it's not this promise of material possessions, but rather that God will meet our needs. What he desires to do is to free us from a life of anxiety. Our culture tells us to trust in things to provide us with security. To trust in money and influence. To trust in the newest and the best. Jesus, on the other hand, tells us to ultimately trust in him. I think how true that is to the circumstances that we're facing. Right? It's easy to get caught up in a spirit of fear. To maybe question why God is allowing these things to happen. But ultimately, we can have faith, hope, assurance, and security that God is on his throne and he is still at work. That he calls us to trust doesn't mean it's going to be with a life without trials or difficulty, but yet we can have hope 
beyond this life, assurance, security, right, that helps us navigate every circumstance we may encounter. Richard Foster, in his book, goes on to talk about kind of the relationship between our inner life along with our outer life, and he calls it a paradox. He says, a paradox has to do with the balance between our inner and outer dimensions of simplicity. He goes on to say, living living in Christian simplicity would be easier to understand if we could reduce it to a system of external rules, right? If we placed all of these exact requirements in life and said that is a simple life, that would feel easier to do, right? That there would be maybe a defined structure to say what is right and wrong. But he says, however, an outer expression of true simplicity must necessarily flow from the inner resources. Without inner simplicity, all external efforts are in vain. They're useless. At the same time, he says, we delude ourselves if we think we can possess this inner reality of simplicity without it having a profound effect on the way that you and I live. What he's saying is that our inner life will impact our outer life, but our outer life can remind us of what we want to be about in terms of our inner life. The Christian practice of simplicity is an inward inward reality that impacts our outward lifestyle. The first question for you and I is this. How fixated am I in accumulating things? Jesus talked about the danger that pursuing wealth can bring. The slavery or bondage that ensues with making that our pursuit. That uh, the Bible talks about uh, us having adequate or proper provision, but wants to keep us uh, away from the dangers of the love of money. I know for me, it is so easy to get caught up in pursuing things. One of my uh, daily regimens is to check out Facebook Marketplace and Craigslist for free items. Uh, It's something that my wife doesn't love about me, but uh, she's often entertained by it, right? That uh, these pursuits have uh, produced for me uh, additional things. I think of around a year ago, uh, I saw a free smoker on Craigslist and I now have a F-150 truck, so that makes it duly dangerous because I can pick up free items very easily as well. And never mind you that this smoker, uh, its temperature gauge was broke. It was free to me. And so it took the corner of my garage for a period of time before my wife uh, required that we use it or I get rid of it, right? I've also brought home a uh, free basketball hoop. She said, hey, I'm following you on Fine Friends. Where are you at? And I'm like, picking up a free item, of course. Like, this is so exciting. Our kids can have a basketball hoop, right? The pole was broken, and now it's just kind of hanging tied around my tree. Uh, 
One of my uh, more embarrassing moments was I decided to kind of go out far out in Wadsworth. It was about a 15, 20 minute drive. I was gonna pick up uh, a new pair of shoes. Well, I got to the free porch pickup only to discover that they were kid size. So fortunately, I waited for about a year, stored them, and had my son Cooper wear them for a short while, so at least I got some use of this. About six months ago, I discovered uh, an app, a website called Wish. Now, Wish orders things very cheaply from China. I call it delayed gratification. Right? It comes in this gray package about a month after you order it. Often, I forgot what I ordered, right? that uh, I would receive time and time carabiners in the mail. And my wife was, Adam, why are you ordering? I'm like, they're a quarter. I, I can make use of carabiners. Uh, one of my uh, more recent purchases was what I'd hoped would bring much satisfaction to uh, the Ohio winter. I saw for $7 a car shield on Wish. And so I decided to ship to uh, the Stray Dog Cafe underneath the library because I want to pay for the extra shipping to my home. And I was so excited for this package. Look for the time to go for multiple days. Well, I came home and it was snowing at that day. And here was my car shield. As you can see, it was rather thin and unfortunately didn't fit across my F-150. I took out bungee cords as opposed to the suction cups that it came with, and it was blowing in the wind, and my hands were freezing, and my wife is looking out at the kitchen window just hysterically laughing, right? This has sat in my garage ever since, that I haven't used it. I know for me it is so easy to get caught up in the fixation of accumulating things, hoping that they will bring a satisfaction or a peace or a joy to my life that I didn't have before. And often it can be a very subtle fade that what our life can seem is this fixation on things can lead to a very scattered life. There's a poet in the late 1800s, Oscar Wilde, that says, Nowadays, people know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. How easily it is for our heart to get divided, distracted, to become ineffective. So how do we begin to get a handle on this? How do we go about simplifying our life? I think Richard Foster has some good suggestions that I've added to, that I've adapted, that I'd love to remind us of today. I think first, recognize all that I have is a gift from God. This is first and foremost of importance that what I have is not mine, but rather his that he has given to me for a period of time. That I trust God to do whatever he wants with his stuff. That I make his stuff available to others that I recognize ultimately it's his and it's available for others to use. That I enjoy what I already have, right? That I uh, enjoy the presence of the things um, or my possessions uh, to its fullest, what I already have. That I develop a regular habit of giving things away, especially as I may accumulate and bring new things in. 
that I buy things for their usefulness rather than their status, that I begin to kind of look at the motive behind my purchases, that I can learn to enjoy things without owning them. This is just one of the greatest parts about living in community with others, that we can share our resources, that we don't have to own everything, that we can lend to each other. And finally, that I reject anything that's producing an addiction in me, that I am cautious to watch how my heart can be pulled in different directions. I like to think of it this way. We often talk around here about this idea of praying for your three, right? That I would equate that as one of the seek first the kingdom of God principles. I remind myself every morning with my bracelet that is pray for your three. And when I begin to compare my fixation on things versus my prayerfulness in pursuit of my three times, I'm humbled. Right? That the amount of time, effort, and energy that I spend into things that are obviously close to God's heart versus the things that I run after take my time, my effort, my energy. I think this idea of simplicity doesn't just affect our closets, but it also affects our calendar. In Matthew 6, Jesus is saying that the pagans run after these things, what we shall eat, drink, wear. I think the second question for you and I is, am I driven by the trivial or the meaningful? There's really only three things we can do with our time. We can waste it, We can spend it, or we can invest it. God simply wants us to not just endure, but rather enjoy our time. To be useful, to not be slaves to our schedule, but rather to make the most impact with the time that we've been given. I think for you and I, it's not necessarily a time management plan that we need, but rather a time management perspective. Patrick Lencioni, a famous business writer, says, If everything is important, then nothing is important. If everything matters, then nothing matters. I think that if I could begin to peek over God's shoulders as to how he viewed my time— I would recognize that when I say yes to certain things, I'm saying no to other things. That I have a limited amount of time with which I'm a steward to use it well. I remember years ago, uh, I was driving out of town and listening to uh, a CD of Stephen Covey, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I was struck by... Uh, one of his chapters called The Tyranny of the Urgency. He has a chart, and in this chart, he uh, divides kind of our time into four quadrants based upon importance and urgency. Quadrant one activities in the upper left-hand corner are those that are both urgent and important. They're the crises in life. They're the things that must take immediate attention. They're significant. Quadrant two activities are those that are important but don't always feel urgent. They may be 
uh, relationships. Maybe it's uh, fitness or uh, eating healthily, right? Quadrant three activities are those things that are right in front of us that always kind of take precedence, but if we were to step back, don't always seem the most important. What Stephen Covey's premises is that we spend much of our time stuck in quadrant three rather than quadrant two activities. When we can begin to evaluate our time, evaluate our energy and how we spend, we can begin to use those more productively. I know for me, I have to consciously think every time that I come home, if it's around five, six o'clock dinner time, that I have a choice I must make every night. Am I going to be intentional in spending a few hours with my kids, with my wife, right? Can I silence or put my phone down uh, for a period of time? Or am I driven by having to respond to the latest text or opening the latest app if I just have a spare moment, right? Developing these uh, practices and disciplines so that I can live in a quadrant two activity with the things that I value the most ends up showing in my outward life. I think a third final question for you and I is where in our life could less mean more? Why do we need huge homes? Why do we need to be driven um, for expensive cars? Or why do we need... um, to accrue debt, to take on things, or packed closets. This idea of decluttering is not something new, but more recently, the mental health benefits with decluttering have come into uh, light. They've made us aware that decluttering can help reduce financial pressure, that we're less prone to impulse buys. It can reduce anxiety, that uh, clutter is chaos for our mind, that we are often overstimulated. We're exhausted that I think I will walk into my bedroom and see laundry unfolded, right? That it just brings this level of work or anxiety. Decluttering is known to help improve our sleep, right? That we can remove kind of projects out of the areas when we want to rest and relax. Decluttering can produce productivity and creativity. A clutter-free environment allows us to perform tax, uh, tasks more efficiently. I remember uh, around a year ago, I was picking up our babysitter and her husband to take them to the airport. And I went to pick them up and walked into their living room and I was struck. I was struck by the sleek uh, look of their living room, but more importantly, the lack of clutter. What was in their living room was only what was necessary. The environment was drastically different than the environment I had just come from. I can't show you a picture of my house because it'd be a little embarrassing. I recognize I have little kids running around with toys, but what am I teaching them in terms of clutter? in terms of kind of the chaos or the environment. Uh, 
Where in our life can less mean more? What do we need to begin to subtract from our lives so that we can focus more? Ecclesiastes 7.29 said, God made man simple. Man's complex problems are his own devising. There will come a point in time where all of us will uh, meet Jesus face to face. And I don't fear that moment. I, I believe the truth of the gospel, that there is nothing I can do to earn my way or to be right with God. But it's what he's done on our behalf that allows me to have assurance and security in that moment. Right? It's his finished work on the cross that opens the door for a forever relationship with our creator. It's something that we don't deserve, but embracing that truth drastically changes everything about how I see myself and how I see others and how I interact day to day. I don't fear that moment in what he may say to me, but if I'm honest... I wonder if he may think I'm more like Mary or more like Martha. Will God look at my life and think that I was distracted by many things? Or will he look knowing I'm convinced of what is most important? Will he know that my uh, unappassionate, um, unapologetic, single dominant motive in life is to seek first his kingdom, to live my life in such a way where everything I do points to him, that he isn't top on my priority list, but rather the center of my life. That's my hope and prayer for all of us, that this life of simplicity is one that starts with a single dominant motive and impacts every area of our life. Will you pray with me? Father, uh, I'm reminded of the importance of what it looks like to be able to attach our life to you. Lord, you lived a simple life, one that was fulfilling, one that did everything with one ulterior motive. Lord, as we look at your life, we just ask for um, wisdom, insight, direction, and being able to uh, model and articulate uh, against a culture that's extremely complex. We need your uh, Holy Spirit to guide and direct us, give us insight in how to live accordingly, that we invite your presence in in such a way that allows the complexities of life to be unified by a single dominant motive. Lord, we love you. We need you. We recognize that you are near, that you are our ultimate source of hope, security, and peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.